the writer of the book of Hebrews has written a very strong letter with a very grave warning to uh, these Jewish Christians that were under pressure and persecution to turn away from Christ and to turn back to the Mosaic customs that they had been saved from. And for 12 chapters, he has given to them a very clear, very systematic, very concise comparison between all that exists under Moses and all that exists in Christ Jesus. And he has shown beyond any shadow of doubt that the two things are very separate and that Jesus is far superior to anything that could ever be uh, attained or experienced under the Mosaic Covenant. And he's given to them with that explanation a very hard warning. And that is that if you choose to turn away from Christ and go back to Moses, that you are free to do that. But it comes at great cost to you in your life now. And it comes at the peril of your soul as it relates to eternity and your standing before God according to grace. And he has not minced words. He has not sugar-coated anything. He has said things that would strike terror in fear in his audience as he has gone through. But he's concluded that message, and as we come now to chapter 13, the final portion of this epistle, the writer of Hebrews is now going to give to the Christians that he's addressing a series of disjointed, one, sometimes two or three verse exhortations that really aren't related too much to each other in any one particular way. It's kind of like a P.S. at the end of a letter. He's finished everything that he's had to say, and now he says, oh yeah, by the way, while I've got your attention, I want to lay these things upon you too. And the two things by way of introduction that strike me about this are, first of all, the, the care and concern that the author has for these people as Christians. I can relate to this because it's much like a parent or much like a father towards his kids. When he has their attention and he knows that these are the last things that he's going to say to them, he thinks very quickly, what are the things that are the most important that I would want to lay down in their lives before separating from them for a season or signing off on a letter that I'm writing to them? And so his care for them gives to you and I the understanding that these things are of critical importance, that though they seem small, though they seem like, oh yeah, this is just at the end, They're important to his heart and important to the Spirit of God, even to us in this day, that we understand the truths that are laid down in this. But the other thing that strikes me about this chapter of Hebrews is that it assumes, even by way of being here before us tonight, that the Hebrew Christians are going to get victory over the struggle that they're facing of the temptation of turning away. You would almost think that if the writer doubted for one minute that these people were still going to turn away from Christ, that he would say, if you guys stay in the faith, I'll write you another letter with things you need to know later on. But at this point, he's in his mind thinking that they're already past, already beyond the struggle and the temptation, that they're going to overcome, and that now let's move on to the next thing. And I love that, not only about the writer of Hebrews, but I love that about God. 
I love that he can, can, can give to us a warning or an exhortation or sometimes a spiritual correction. You guys know what I mean by that, right? Spiritual correction. We all get those from time to time. But almost immediately after giving us that, he speaks to us as though that's so far beyond and behind us and that he's, he's moving us forward and that he's got a plan for our future. And so there's great hope in chapter 13, even in the fact that it's here for us, that God has more for us. And so what are the things that he says to the believers, and this extends very much to you and I, concerning this Christian life as he closes out the epistle? He begins in verse 1 by telling us to let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is very much a person. He is part of what we call as Christians the triune God. That is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but yet they are one. There is one God. As the Bible says that God is one. A great mystery that we cannot understand, but that God very plainly tells us that that is who he is. Three in one. Now, when the Son of God ascended... The Spirit of God descended and now indwells and fills every believer in Jesus Christ throughout the ages of the church that have been since. And the Spirit of God shares a personality with the Father and the Son. The three are one. And so in that the Spirit of God fills the child of God, fills you and I, then his personality becomes a part of us. So what is the personality of the Son of God and the Spirit of God? Well, it's Jesus as we see him in the Gospels. But it's also the graces that are described in Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 as the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, Paul said, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, gentleness, and self-control. All of those things are attributes that describe the personality of the Holy Spirit. Now, if the Holy Spirit resides in the believer and in the church, then the natural inclination that we're going to have as we yield to the Spirit in our lives is that we're going to love one another because the Spirit of God is love. And so as the Spirit imparts love to us, that love is, is to flow through us to others. However... Because we are individuals, and because we have a will, and because God doesn't overrule our will, we have the choice whether or not we're going to allow that love to flow through us, or if we're going to quench it in some way and keep it to ourselves. And so what the writer is exhorting us here is that we would let that love that is made available to us by God flow out of us towards others. It's a choice that we have in every area of our Christian lives. In Romans, Paul said that we're to yield ourselves as servants to righteousness, not as servants to sin. It's a choice, isn't it? We can choose whether or not we want to give ourselves to the old fleshly worldly things or whether we want to give ourselves to the new spiritual heavenly things that God has placed before us. We have that choice. And Paul says, yield yourselves to the things of the Spirit. We can yield ourselves to being self-centered, to being self-exalted, self-absorbed, or we can allow the Spirit of God to flow through us and give love away to others, us being the vessel through which that love is brought. 
And he says, listen, let brotherly love continue. Don't hold it back. Don't quench the work of the Holy Spirit to love someone else through you. Be a channel through which God can reach into other people's lives. And so he says, let brotherly love continue. That is the will and the provision that the Holy Spirit gives to us. Now, why is that important and why would the the writer of Hebrews write that down? In Psalm chapter 133, it's a very short psalm. It's just three verses. I want you to listen to what the psalmist says. He says, by the Spirit of God, behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments. A picture of the body of God's believers. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, and here it is, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So what he tells us here is that it is good and pleasant for brethren, that's you and I, sistren too, if you want. It's it's good for us to dwell together in unity. Why? Because it's there that the oil, which is a symbol of God's free-flowing Holy Spirit, is poured out upon the body that drips down even to the feet, and it's where the blessing of the Lord is commanded. When brotherly love flows between believers and it's not quenched by selfishness or pride, it opens the door for God's spirit to flow in powerful ways and manifest his presence among us. And so the writer says, let brotherly love continue. He goes on in verse two to say, remember also, or uh, I'm sorry, be not forgetful to entertain or to be hospitable unto strangers. People that you don't know. The faces that you pass in the supermarket. People that you see driving other cars. Even people in church that you're not acquainted with yet. Be not forgetful to be hospitable unto them. Hospitality means to extend your kindness and extend the resources of your life to whatever capacity you can in a given moment to a person. And that might be when you pass, see, just see someone in a deli that, that to, to be hospitable in that circumstance is just to open up your life to them in whatever way you can. Make eye contact, smile at them, say hello, and just, just open your life. And that might be all you get, but that's being hospitable in that situation. You're opening your life. You're making yourself available to them. In another context, it might be somebody who needs a place to stay, or it might be someone you might open your home to, and it might be in a greater context. But what he's saying is that in every place you are, open up your life to the best you can to someone else. And here's why. He says, remember, or do not be forgetting to do that, because thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That it happens from time to time that the person that you're opening your life up to or showing hospitality to, that that person is an angel in disguise as a human being. It happened to Abraham. It happened to Lot. When he was in Sodom, he was visited by angels. It's happened from time to time throughout the Bible, and it can happen in our lives as well. My wife, uh, this past summer, she took one of my daughters on a a one-on-one trip, and they went upstate, and they were hiking, I believe it was at Watkins Glen. 
And they were there at a time when there weren't very many people around, and uh, they really wanted to get a picture of themselves uh, just together to, to, to mark the, the day, you know, that they had done that together. And there was absolutely no one around that could take that picture, and they weren't selfie savvy, you know. And so they walked for a little while, and Georgia said that out of the blue, all of a sudden there was this very kind old man that just showed up. And he was right there at the perfect time, and he asked them, he said, can I take your picture? And they said, well, sure, absolutely. And so he, she gave the camera. The guy took the picture. She said, thank you, you know, and George is very warm, very kind, you know. And, uh, and, and, and the guy walked, they walked, they turned around, he was gone, never saw him again. Now, could it have just been some old man walking through Watkins Glen that day? Sure. But could it have been an angel unawares? Sure. Absolutely, you know. And, and we don't know. Now, the word angel in the Bible is translated messenger. And sometimes in our openness to someone else and allowing them into our lives, we're opening the door for someone to relay a message that might be from God. Now, I know that happens to every one of us every time we give someone the opportunity to be a part of our lives. God uses something that they say or something that they do to give to us a word, a, 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 a word of instruction, a, something of encouragement, something in some way that helps us in, in something that maybe we were thinking about that. Oh, man, thank you, Lord, that just through that simple encounter, you answered a question that I had. I have a friend who recently going through something uh, quite heavy with his family and kind of all at once just his, his world kind of cracking and shaking a little bit. Solid believer. And he was working, he was working with a couple of unbelievers and he was sharing with this one particular uh, guy some of the things that he was going through and, and, and the difficulty of it. And this guy who was not a Christian at all just looked at him and said, hey, do you ever just trust God with things like that in your life? And he was like, ooh. Ouch, you know, here I'm being told by an unbeliever that I need to have faith when I'm going through a trial. But it's an angel unawares sometimes. Someone in our lives that God is using to speak into it. And he says, be hospitable because it pays a dividend. God will use that through his providence providence to steer and direct your path. And so he says, um, do not be forgetful to do that. Then verse three, he says, remember them also that are in bonds. And the idea behind this is, is people that are um, being persecuted and they're imprisoned for the sake of Christ. In the first century uh, church, that was extremely common. You had to pledge allegiance to Rome if you were a Roman citizen. And for you to declare that Jesus was Lord was to blaspheme Rome. And so to go on record as a Christian was an incredibly risky thing in the first century Christian world. And many people were locked up because of it. And what he's saying here to them, he's saying, remember them that are in bonds as though you were bound with them. Now ask yourself a question. What would you want to be treated like? Or how would you want people to, to, to um, tend to you if you were in prison for the cause of Christ? What would you expect from the church? And what the writer is saying very simply is be that to them. Now, it's much harder in the United States of America and for the church in the United States of America to find people like this and to serve them in the way that we would want to be served. But it serves us well, doesn't it, to consider, 
And to think that there are people in the world today that are suffering very strong persecution, even to the point of prison, for the sake of the gospel. And it would do us well to just take it to God in prayer and just say, God, how can I in some way reach out to someone who's in a situation like that where I can be a part of it, knowing that if I was in that situation, I would want that same type of treatment. He says, remember them that are bound is bound with them and also them which suffer adversity. Now, we might not know very many people that are in prison for the cause of Christ, but we absolutely do know people that are suffering adversity though they have faith in Christ, don't we? And you know why we know many people like that? Because every one of us as Christians from time to time go through situations or seasons of life where there is the suffering of adversity. It's just a part of the narrow path that we walk through. And Christians in those situations and circumstances need the support of other Christians. And so if you're going through a season right now of relative ease, then be available and reach out to those that are afflicted and be sensitive of the fact that the things that you have been through as a Christian that have caused pain in your life have happened to you for the very cause of being able to comfort, encourage, and testify to others that are going through similar things then. Don't become an island as a Christian. All of these things are in the context of looking out for one another, aren't they? He goes on to say in verse 4, a completely separate topic. He says that marriage is honorable in all and the bed is undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Now, one of the, um, the, the pious things, especially New Testament or first century Jews would do, is that they would remain celibate, not because they had a gift or a calling to celibacy, but rather because of the apparent spirituality that it uh, put forth to to live that kind of a life. I'm not going to give myself to marriage. I'm going to give myself completely to God. And what the writer is communicating to them here is that you're not more spiritual than someone else because you choose to remain unmarried. He says marriage is honorable in all. And marriage is honorable in all. Marriage is one of the highest... uh, illustrations or testaments that God has given um, as, as a representation of what his will is in creating man in the first place. When God put man in the Garden of Eden, it says that he made him in his image. Man was created in the image of God. He was the only thing in all of God's creation that was in his image. He was given a free will. He was given a soul. He was made in the image of God. And God said concerning the man that he made that it is not good for man to be alone. And so what he did is he put a deep sleep upon the man. He took something out. Pay attention to that. He took something out of the man. And with it, he formed the woman, which means taken from man. And then Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 give us a clue as to what God had in mind when he did that. See, God didn't make a mistake. He didn't create for seven days and say, well, I made almost everything that was good, but I didn't. I forgot one thing, and so I'm going to visit creation again, and now I'm going to create a woman. He didn't do that. The woman already existed in the man on the day that the man was created. She was removed from him, and God made her into something that was separate. 
And Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 explains it. It says this. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day that they were created. Do you see that? Do you see what God did? He made man singular. Then he divided it into male and female And he called their, which is plural, name, which is singular, Adam. And thus the two became one again in the sacrament of marriage. And so you had a man and then the woman separated from the man and then the two things conjoined and they made up the man. That's what marriage is. You say, what in the world was God thinking when he made that? You know what he was thinking? He was thinking, this is a testimony of why I created man in the first place. Because the Bible says that we are the bride of Christ. And when Jesus Christ came into the world, he was God in human form. And yet his side was opened up while he was on the cross. And something was taken out of him and given to you and I when we were born again. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, God gives to us His Holy Spirit, and He gives to us gifts of His Holy Spirit that are attributes of His very person. He takes something out of Himself, and He gives it to us. And we wait for the day when the marriage will be consummated, and the two will become one. That all will be in all when all things are in him. And thus marriage is a beautiful testimony of the work of redemption in the world. And thus marriage is honorable in all. It's not more spiritual to remain unmarried. It's a testimony. It's created by God. And he goes on to say in that verse that the marriage bed also is undefiled. Now the marriage bed is the place of procreation or recreation, or sex. That's what he's talking about when he says the marriage bed. And he says that you need to understand that sex is sanctified in marriage and that the bed is undefiled. It is it is clean. It has been sealed. And so don't think that it's unclean if you're married. Now, if you're unmarried, then you're unclean. Because he goes on to say that whoremongers, and the word in the Greek that's used there is the word pornos, that is, pornographers or fornicators, those that participate in sexual things outside of marriage, and that includes pornography in the language. He says that those that are pornographers or fornicators and adulterers, which are those that are married that go outside of the marriage covenant, that they remain under the judgment of God. That's important to understand and important to know. Is that if we take God's sanctified place of marriage and we pervert it in some way by taking it out or removing it from the confines of it, that we're placing ourselves under the judgment of God. And and why? You say, well, why is God so restrictive when it comes to that? He's restrictive for a few reasons. Number one, all you got to do is look around at the damage that that kind of thing causes in the lives of human beings. You look at the damage that that does in a soul. 
The Bible says that, that he that commits fornication or adultery destroys his own soul. You're taking the contents of your life, the very preciousness and essence of what God made you, and you're pouring it out on nothing. Or you're pouring it into a person that you're not linked to forever, and when the relationship severs, you lose the part of you that you've poured into that person. It becomes fragmented. And God hates watching lives fragmented. And so he condemns it. He says it's wrong. The other reason is because marriage is a picture of God's faithfulness towards us. And we want God to remain faithful to us, don't we? We don't want God to turn his back on us or lose interest in us. And he doesn't want us to lose interest in him. And so the testimony of our faithfulness to our spouse is a part of our testimony of our relationship with him. And so to be in one of those positions is to be under the judgment of God. And let me tell you something, it's not worth it. As a pastor, weekly, I hear the stories of the carnage that is wrought by this very sin. And I can tell you, it is not worth it. When you see what happens in the life of the two partners, even the one that's non-offending, and you see what happens in the lives of the children, it's not worth it. Verse 5, let your lifestyle, the word conversation, the King James uh, word means lifestyle. Every time you see it in the King James Bible, it's talking about the way you live. He says, let your lifestyle be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Uh, He says, let your lifestyle be without covetousness. Now, covetousness is greed. It's consumption, the accumulation of material possessions as the master passion of my life. That's what it means to be covetous. To be constantly obtaining, consuming, and and, and attaining things, material things. Now, contentment is being happy with what you have right now. Saying that it is absolutely enough. Jesus warned concerning covetousness in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He said, beware of covetousness. He gave that very clear and, and, and stark warning to you and I. That desire to just constantly have more and more and more. And then he added this to the warning. He said, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. And that's absolutely true, isn't it? It was great. We had a moment, a totally unplanned moment um, this Christmas. I was talking to my five-year-old son, Riley. And we were having our, our, our pep talk about um, people and things, which we give quite frequently when, when they're about to get showered with things, you know. And we talk about how we love people, but we use things, we don't use people, and we don't love things, you know. And what's more important, people or things? We just go through this whole thing about people and things and people and things. And I said, you're going to get a lot of gifts tomorrow and, and, and a lot of things and, and everything. But I said, you know what's going to happen to every one of your gifts? And he looked at me and he goes, what, Dad? I said, they're going to end up in the garbage. And he goes, what? I don't go, that's right. They're going to end up in the garbage. And I said, and you know what? I said, you know what's going to happen to this couch that we're sitting on right now? I said, it's going to end up in the garbage. And I said, you know what's going to happen to this house one day? It's going to be in the garbage. I said, everything that you see right now is going to end up in the garbage. And he looked at me, he looked around, and Rocky, who was sitting next to me, he's my 13-year-old, he looked over and he goes, 
He's right, Riley. <laughs> it's all going to end up in the garbage. And and it was to him. And then the smile formed. He's like got this pensive look, and then he's like, like realizing it. Like, man, really? Like that's true? You know, all of it's going to. Listen, let me tell. Let me remind us tonight. Everything that exists in this material world is going to end up in the garbage. Nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. Life lasts. People last. Heaven lasts. Forgiveness of sins lasts. The cross lasts. Jesus lasts. Those things hold worth and value because they last. Nothing that this world could ever give to you and I lasts. The Bible says naked we came into this world and naked we will leave. We actually leave this world with less than what we came in with. We came in with a body. We don't even leave with that. Nothing in this world endures and lasts. And so the writer says, do not live covetously because it's a waste of life, but rather be content with the things that you have. Did you know that covetousness and contentment cannot coexist? They are mutually exclusive. They cannot be together in a life at the same time. You cannot be wanting something or things or obtaining things and also at the same time be content. And the difference between the two is this, is that the covetous man is happy only when he gets what he wants. And the content man is happy because he wants what he gets. You see the difference? I'll be happy when I get whatever I want, when I get the thing I'm seeking after. The content person, well, whatever I have, I'm content with it. I'm happy with it. I want whatever I have right now. That's contentment. The covetous person is ungrateful and they're always empty because they always want more. But the content person is grateful and therefore they are great and full. The grateful person is a grateful person. And the reason why we can be content as Christians, the writer goes on to tell us, is because of what we have. Notice what he says. He says, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, so that we might boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man will do unto me. A quote from Psalm 118, verse 6. Listen, if you have Jesus, then what else really do you need? The Bible says that he withholds no good thing from us. Meaning that if there is something that it is his disposal to give and it is good for us to have it, then he is willing to bestow it in our lives. Now, follow that thought just one step further. If he doesn't withhold any good thing from us and he has the ability to give us anything that, 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 he, that he wants to, if he doesn't give to us something that we want, then what does that mean? It means it's not good for us. Right? And that might only be for a season. I used to think, Lord, if, if only I could just hit lotto or, you know, something could happen where, you know, I just didn't have to worry about money ever again. That that was just something that was totally gone. And I would just be able to serve you and not think about that. And man, Lord, could you just do that for me in my life? You know what? He didn't do it. And you know what I've learned since just by experience? is that if he did, it would be a disaster. It would be a disaster in my life. I have learned that if he gives me one saltine cracker more than what I need or know what to do with, I will in some way use that to get myself into trouble because that's just what's in my heart. 
You want more proof? Look around in society. We live in the united covetous states of America, don't we? Where the whole society is seeking after the dream of wealth and riches and ease. But do you ever pay attention what happens to people that have wealth and riches and ease? I mean, what are we reading in the headlines? Just, okay, George Michael, 53 years old, dead. Coming out now that he had a secret heroin and drug addiction. A man who obtained. A man who had more than he could desire. Dead at the age of 53. We're reading about Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia, right? From the original Star Wars. 60 years old, dead. Coming out now that she struggled. Drug addiction. Various things in her life led to other problems, other failures. Just in the past year, look at what's happened. Remember what happened to Robin Williams. It's, it's a mess what happens in a life that has more than what can be handled by that human life. I read a couple of other articles. I, I meant to write them down. I don't think I did. But uh, one of them was absolutely hilarious. There was an 81-year-old man. <laughs> Maybe you saw this. Oh, I did write them down. 80, <laughs> 81-year-old man in Florida who was arrested in a shuffleboard rage attack. <laughs> I want to see the YouTube video on that. <laughs> you know, like, like did his teeth fall out when he swung the thing? You know, I mean, how does that happen? How do we get there? You know, listen, God knows exactly what we need. And he is faithful to provide over and above and beyond. And I am convinced of this, is that when we are sanctified to a place where we can handle more, he releases more. But until that time, let it be the position of your heart and mind that we would say, Lord, I am content with what I have and where I am right now, knowing that you know me better than I know myself. And I trust you with everything that is as it is. Be content. He goes on then to say in verse 7, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their lifestyle or their conversation. Be mindful of the people that have taught you the word of God. Be mindful of the example that they have laid out for you in the faith that they have communicated to you through the word of God and be observant of the outcomes of their life as they live the things that they profess. That's what the author is saying to them here in this verse. And what that does is it attaches faith to an example, doesn't it? He's saying these things of faith they've laid down in your lives. Now watch the example of their life and see the good things that it does in them as you continue to follow after. That lays the responsibility on two parties. It lays a responsibility on the hearer or the listener to observe and to follow and to remember the example and to pattern the life according to it. But it lays the responsibility on the leader or the teacher to live the life that he is preaching and communicating because people are watching and what happens in my life is going to also happen in your life. And so he's laying out before, he's saying, listen, there's a connection between what you profess and what you believe and the kind of life that it produces based on the example. He says then in verse 8, ultimately, where our eyes and focus should be, he says, Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. This is probably one of the most important verses in the whole New Testament concerning the characteristic of Jesus Christ that we would call his immutability. That is, the fact that he does not change. He's the same yesterday 
and today and forever. Meaning that today, Jesus is exactly the same as he was as many yesterdays as you can count back to. The yesterdays when he walked the earth, the yesterdays that he existed before that, he has been the same. And he's the same Jesus today with the same personality and the same convictions and the same commands and morals. He's the same Jesus now that he ever was then. And tomorrow he's going to be exactly the same as he is today. And none of that is ever going to change concerning the person and the personality of our Savior. And that's a very, very important and comforting thing to realize that he is the same. Now, if he could change, if it was even possible that he could change, automatically he would be less than perfect. Because perfect implies complete, doesn't it? And if he can change, then that means that there was something that needed to be adjusted or something that could be improved upon in some way or something that was lacking that could now be added to him. And if any of those things were to happen, then that would mean that yesterday he wasn't perfect, which would imply that today he's not perfect either, because tomorrow there'll be something more that needs to be added to him as well. But the Bible declares that he is perfect, and in that he is perfect, it stands to reason that he absolutely cannot change. And what that means for you and me is that it means that his mind concerning what he says will never change. His ways and what is life will never change. It's going to constantly be the same. His will as it's revealed in the word and what he's spoken is never going to change. His personality and who he is as a person is never going to change. His decisions and judgments of how he handles situations and circumstances and issues will never change. They're the same. All of it is constant. Which means that when he speaks to us and he says, this is the way that life is to be lived. That's always going to be the way that life is to be lived. He's not going to change his mind. That when people look at us and they say that the Bible is archaic or it doesn't take into account the changing of the times and so therefore we can't apply what Jesus said back then to the way that we live now, that's absolute wrong. Because the Bible says that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. They were saying that in Jeremiah's day. And Jeremiah stood before the people and he said, Thus saith the Lord, ask ye for the old paths wherein is the good way and you'll find rest for your souls. His ways are his ways for a reason. And when we give ourselves to his ways, we experience the blessing and the benefit that's attached to those ways. And it's a comfort, isn't it, that those ways aren't changing? I have a hard enough time trying to figure out him and his person and his will, even though he's the same. What if he changed? And we had to constantly figure out, we change, right? My wife has to figure out who I am every month. And I have to figure out her, and that's kind of human relationships. What if we had to do that with our invisible Savior? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What a comfort. He says, be not, verse 9, carried about or carried away with diverse and strange doctrines or teachings For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace and not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. And so as we come to verse 9, we're now dealing with the Bible, we're dealing with teaching, we're dealing with doctrine, we're dealing with revealed truth here, concepts, spiritual themes, theologies. Now, there are literally thousands of things that we could call doctrines. We could talk about the doctrine of Calvinism. 
or the doctrine of redemption or the doctrine of Christology, the doctrine of the virgin birth. I mean, you just take any theme of the Bible at all and there is a doctrine that's attached to it, meaning that there is something to be understood concerning the truth of those concepts. That's what doctrine is. And the exhortation that he's given to us here is to be careful that we don't become carried away or over-occupied with doctrines that are not critical or that do not in some way bring us to the, the, the purpose of revealed truth as a whole. If I were to show you right now a bridge, let's say the walking bridge, you know, the one that goes over the, the Hudson River, you know, and I were to show you that bridge and I were to say to you, the purpose of this bridge is to give a human being safe passage from Poughkeepsie to Highland on foot. That's the purpose of this bridge. And you'd look at me and you'd say, well, that's a a, a very um, high distance between the water and that bridge, and it's a very long span. How can I trust that that bridge is going to safely bring me to the other side if I give myself to walk across it? At that point, then I can begin to show you various components of that bridge in order to build trust. I could say, okay, well, look at these steel trusses. You see that? Well, this one right here, just this one little piece, this one little piece is rated to be able to to, to carry 10,000 pounds without breaking. And now let's go a little deeper, and I take you under the water, and I show you the concrete piers that go way down to the base of the, you know, the, the floor of the Hudson River. And I say, you see these concrete, you know, and I show you these. This is concrete. This is 30,000 pounds a square inch per square inch that this can endure. And then I bring you back to the surface. Now, what am I going to say to you? I'm going to say, isn't? let's talk about that concrete. I, want, I really want to dive into this. Let's get out the material safety data sheets and let's talk about what makes concrete strong and why it works and what water does when it's set up into it and the whole thing. You'd say, well, well, what, who cares? I, I don't care what concrete is made of. I just want to know that it's strong enough to hold the bridge to hold me so that I can get across to the other side. Now listen, the purpose of revealed truth is that we might, number one, know God. That's his high and holy purpose for our lives is that we would know him. Number two is that we would know his plan of salvation and that his truth and his ways would be revealed to us, that we would know him and know his ways. And number three, that we would understand life and understand ourselves. That's what God wants in revealing truth to us. Now, there are thousands of doctrines in the Bible that are very important, but they're not standalone doctrines. They're not important in and of themselves. They're important because they give us trust so that the main thing of knowing God and safe passage to heaven and all that that we get from crossing this bridge of salvation, that we trust him to walk across it. And you can become consumed with doctrines that don't matter. Calvinism versus Arminianism. Eternal security versus, uh, you know, can I lose my salvation? Is the rapture before, during, or after the tribulation? Who is the Antichrist? You know, you can just take every one of these doctrines and you could beat it to death, but you could be wasting your time at the same time. It's there so that it points us back to the surface, not so that we understand every deep thing. And so he's saying, be careful. It's good that the heart be established with grace. The grace of God in Jesus Christ. Doctrine's important. I love doctrine. You know why? Because I love God and I want to know him. And so doctrine doesn't pull me away from him. It draws me to him in that way. 
He says, they have not occupied or profited them that have been occupied therein. Then he goes on in verse 10 and he, he brings uh, to them the, the answer to the question of what do we have as Christians? What do we have? And that would be a, an important question for the Jews in that day. Like, okay, we don't have a temple anymore. We don't have the sacrificial system. We don't have the priests anymore. We don't have Moses. What do we have? He says this, you have this. He says, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. Now, an altar speaks of approach to God, acceptance by God, and access to God. That's what an altar was for. You would bring your offering, and the acceptance of your offering and the shedding of that blood would make you accepted by God. And thus you would have access to him through that sacrifice upon that altar. And what the author is saying here is that we have an altar that those Jews that are sacrificing bulls and rams and lambs and in the tabernacle, they can't touch our altar. The access that we have to God, the acceptance that you and I obtain when we approach God and the access we have to him, we have acceptance before him. He says they have no right to it. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. They would take the animals. They wouldn't kill them in the camp. They'd kill them outside and bring the blood in. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Jesus was crucified outside the city. They led him up the, down the Via Della Rosa and up Mount Calvary, and it was there that he suffered and died outside of the city. So the writer says, Let us go forth, therefore, unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. It's an addendum to the message that the whole book has brought. Listen, if you want to be a follower of Christ, it's going to cost something. For a first century Jew, it meant leaving Judaism, leaving the tabernacle and the temple, leaving the rituals and customs of Moses, and embracing the reproach that that would bring upon a New Testament Jew. For you and I, there's a reproach as well. When we leave the world, when we leave the Gentile life that we lived prior to coming to Jesus Christ, there's a reproach that's attached to it. And he's saying, listen, Jesus bore the reproach of our sins outside the camp, and so therefore let us separate from the old life and go to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Our life is not bound up in the things in this world. Our life is in that which is to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. We don't have an altar of sacrifice whereupon we offer the blood of bulls and goats. But the offering of the Christian in the New Testament is the offering of, of praise and of thanksgiving to his name. And also verse 16, but to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So not only are we to bring our praise and our thanksgiving to God, but it pleases God when we give as well, when we share of our substance. That's what it means there to communicate. Now, giving is huge in the Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And I'm not going to get into a big discourse on giving here, but as I just sum up in my own mind everything that the Bible teaches about giving and why God asks us to give, there are three reasons why God asks us to be givers. Number one is because it frees us from covetousness. 
There is a breaking of the bondage to things that happens when we give of our substance, and it's good for us. The second reason is because giving unstops the flow of resources through our lives. That's a fact, spiritually. It's like the law of gravity, is that when we become givers, those that take what God gives to us and we release it and we become channels of it, it opens the door for God to flow through us more freely. And it's just the way it works. And if you want proof, try it and you'll like it. Trust me. Then number three is because it's a reflection of the virtue of God in our lives. God is a giver. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. God is a giver. And when we give, we are a reflection and an example of him. And therefore, the writer of Hebrews says this is important. To do good and to give, to communicate, do not forget, because God is pleased with such sacrifices. The third thing that we're to do as Christians, not just praise and thanks, not just giving, but then verse 17, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves unto them, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account that they might do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable to you. He's saying, listen, if God has placed a pastor or a teacher in your life or over in some way to influence you through the teaching of the word of God, don't make their life miserable by resisting everything they say and going the hard way down the path in life. But listen to the word of God that's being taught and submit to it. It is not an exhortation towards what some would call the shepherding doctrine, that you just do whatever your pastor says with blind faith. No, no, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible gives us, you know, God gave us a mind and he gives us the Bible and he says, see, search, see, prove these things. But listen, if God speaks through his word, don't resist God. It's not profitable unto you. Don't resist the message that comes from the messenger. Because you don't like the message. You know, they say you don't like the message, the message, kill the messenger, right? <laughs> and that happens all too often uh, on things. But it's not to your advantage. Sometimes a part of this responsibility that we have, we who teach the Bible, is that we have to say things that are hard to hear. Or we have to say things one-on-one to a person that are difficult to say. Or we know that are hard to hear if you're the person that has to hear it you know, a correction or, or, or a calling out or an accountability or something of that nature. And what the writer is saying here is be humble enough to receive it. Someone said something to me early on in my Christian faith that stuck with me and it served me well. They said this. They said, if someone criticizes you or someone corrects you in some way and, or rebukes you, they might be completely off base in what they're saying. But somewhere, in what they said or what they brought to you, there's an element of truth. Find it. No matter how ridiculous it is, no matter how tempted you are to say, you you have no idea what you're talking about, if it is brought to you, ask the question, where's the truth? And you know what I've found over the years, 15 years since I've heard someone say that to me, is that it's always true. There's always something of credence in it. And if you can just adapt that mentality just a little bit, you'll be served by it. The other reason why it's not profitable to, or why it's unprofitable to resist is because if someone's constantly trying to help you and you're constantly resisting them, do you know what they're going to do? 
They're going to stop trying to help you. And that's foolish. It's foolish. Pray for us, verse 18. For we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. He doesn't say we're perfect. He says, but pray for us because we're doing the best that we can. We want to serve you. But I beseech you the rather to do this, to pray that I might be restored to you the sooner. And then the closing in verse 20. He says, now the God of peace. Anyone need peace here tonight? You know where it comes from? It comes from God. God's the one who gives peace. Psalm 118 verse 8 says, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. Again, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Don't look to man or to outward things for peace. Look to God. He's the Prince of Peace. The God of peace that brought us again from the dead. These are his credentials. Our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, able to lead, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you know what he's praying and, and speaking upon their lives in this? He's basically saying to them, listen, everything that I have spoken to you in this book, in this letter up to this point, may God be faithful to bring it to bear upon your life, that you would stand perfect and complete in his will. And I beseech you, verse 22, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation. Allow it. Though it might sting, listen to the truth. Let it hurt. For I have written a letter unto you in a few words. Before I came here tonight, um, I, I took a, a, a um, half of a cap full of Listerine, which all of you are very grateful for, I'm sure, if you've been in close proximity to me. But as I did that tonight, um, what came into my mind was my father's voice the, the, the first time that I ever had Listerine as a child, and he said the words to me. He said, let it burn. Let it burn. And then spit it out. And the reason why you let it burn is because it's working. And what the writer is saying here to us is this. He's saying, let it burn. Sometimes we hear things God says to us that aren't complimentary. Let it burn. Sometimes someone might speak into our lives things that we would categorize as offensive in a certain context. Let it burn. If God is bringing those words into your life, it's for a purpose, it's for our good. He says, I have written a letter unto you in a few words. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom if he come shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you, the pastors there, and all the saints... They of Italy salute you. And then he ends with the best word of all. He says, grace be with you all. Amen. The summation of the book of Hebrews is grace. The musicians can come as we close. But the word that God gives to us through this letter to the Hebrews is this, is that Jesus is better. That whatever it is that you want to put on the other side of the scale or on the other side of the page, or to bring into comparison to Jesus Christ at all, understand this, that Jesus is better. And here's what I want to say to you tonight by way of conclusion of the message of this, this book, the entirety of it, is that if you have received that, 
if you've been coming through and, and listening and hearing and, and, and even in your spirit just agreeing, here's what I can tell you that what's going to happen in your life is that Jesus is going to become so bright and so real and so alive in you even if that's not the case in your life right now. I remember um, sitting in a group of Christians when I was a, a, a young Christian, walking with the Lord. And somebody in the group said this. They said, Jesus. They said, there's just something about that name. And they weren't just quoting the song. You know, we've heard that, that song. But they were actually saying, there's something so precious and so powerful about that name. And everybody in the room went, yeah, yeah. And you know what I did? I went, but you know what I was thinking in my heart? In my heart I was thinking, I'm not sure if I understand what he's talking about. Honestly. Like, I know it's G- Jesus. You know, we've heard that attached to curse words and, you know, we've been around it. I was brought up in a church, you know, and the whole thing. I was like, it's just a name. You know, that's, you know, I don't know. I don't think I understand what he means by that. A few years later, I was listening to a pastor talk about um, the importance of morning devotion, spending spending the early part of the morning with Jesus. And he he said, the day will come when the, the hour of, of morning time with Jesus becomes the sweetest, most precious, most sought after time of your day. And I remember listening to that saying, I'm going to wait for that day because that in honesty, it's not true for me today. It's not the thing that I look the most forward to. And I, I like it. I'm not, you know, I, I just, in all honesty, I'm going to wait for that day. And here's what I can tell you today, not that many days later, is that I know the meaning of both of those things. That there is something about that name, the name Jesus, and who he is, and what he's done, and the reality of his person, and the strength of his redemption, and his presence within our lives, and what we come to learn of him as we grow in him, he is the most precious thing in all of the universe. And if you're not there yet, if you've heard this word, I promise you the seed that will one day become that is in you. And it will be real. And you also will come to that time where you say, Lord, I wouldn't trade my morning with you for hours of sleep, any place in the world, you can have all this world, but give me what? Father, we thank you tonight for Jesus. We thank you for grace. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to know Jesus, that you would help us to live grace, that you would help us to walk worthy of this calling and this life that you've given. We thank you so much for what you're doing in our lives and in our presence. Thank you for speaking to us through this book of Hebrews. We pray that you take it now and seal it in us, that we might know you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.